Our first scripture this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for God's word to us. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling of the bone, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked up, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal. These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord your God, I am going to open your graves, and bring up from your graves, O my people. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves... And bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Our second scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. Listen again to God's word for us. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his Spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. 
One of the great difficulties uh, whenever we read any text like this, these ancient biblical texts, is grasping the reality that, and, and truly taking account for the reality that these texts were written by and to people who are so different from us in so many ways, that lived in these times and places with which we have very little familiarity, that when we read the Bible, we are, in a very real sense, reading someone else's mail, kind of peeking into something that was written by someone else for someone else. Because, you know, at the time when these people wrote these things, they never could have imagined that thousands of years later, people like us would still be reading them, talking about them, wrestling with them, and hearing, most of all, most importantly, hearing God's voice in them. But of course, we have to keep that reality in tension with the affirmation that these words, though they were not first written to us or with us in mind, they do represent the very much living word of God. So, in that sense, while, while the authors certainly didn't have Jasper First Presbyterian Church in mind when they wrote these texts down and shared them among their people, we can still come to them in the assurance that all know we, although we know very little about who wrote them or when or even sometimes why, they still have a profound uh, depth of meaning for us in our own context. That in some strange and holy way, these texts were written for us, even if the authors of them were completely unaware of how influential they would eventually become. So it's important for us to keep this tension in mind whenever we read the Bible, because it reminds us of the importance of context. It helps remind us that as we mine these texts for meaning for us today, that we have to always keep in the forefront of our minds what the meaning may have been for God's people when they were first written down, when they were first spoken. It's an affirmation that the power of God's word comes not simply in how we, in 2014, hear and receive it today, but how God may have been speaking a very particular word to his people in very specific situations back then, and how that meaning might inform how God continues to speak to us today. So I, I read this interesting article uh, online this week. It was called, Five Bible Verses You Need to Stop Misusing. So I was intrigued, of course. It, it's all about kind of our tendency to um, reduce pieces of the Bible to these bite-sized pieces, right? Uh, and in doing so, we often unintentionally, I think with the best of intentions, we often alter their meaning. And we, and we do it all the time uh, without even thinking about it. It's something that, that we ought to be careful about, though, because uh, we don't want to uh, reduce the Bible to these kind of sanitized, uh, self-help, motivational sound bites, right? Uh, it, then we would rob it of its true power in a lot of ways. So, for instance, one of the verses that it mentioned is the, the very famous Philippians 4.13. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's a verse that um, is particularly treasured among uh, many Christian athletes. You'll, you'll see a lot of athletes quote uh, this verse. Some even, who shall remain nameless, because I'm not trying to, you know, step on any toes here, call anybody out in particular, because we all do this. 
but even famously wrote that verse on the, uh, the black eye paint that a lot of football players wear um, during games. And that was eventually banned by the NCAA. And of course, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And in fact, I think uh, anything that gets people in our world talking about the Bible is probably a good thing. Um, but I do think it's, it's indicative of the tendency that we have to take this, this verse, this powerful, incredibly powerful verse from Paul um, that, that he writes as he's sitting in prison, possibly for the rest of his life, and reduce it kind of just to this pithy quote that is, you know, good for a motivational poster, right? We, we used to call that bumper sticker theology. And these days, uh, the modern version of that is we call it Twitter theology. It's the, the Bible in 140 characters or less. Because when Paul writes about endurance and strength from the context of a Roman prison, he's not exactly talking about the endurance to finish the fourth quarter strong, right? He's not talking about the strength to defeat a formidable foe on the gridiron. He's talking about the strength and endurance to find joy in the midst of deep struggle, which he is now suffering for the sake of the gospel. So that's just, just one example of, of kind of how, you know, we, we tend to reduce these incredibly powerful verses, um, to these kind of pithy quotes, right? And the text we read from Ezekiel this morning, uh, I think is also, it's, it's probably the most well-known text from Ezekiel, is also very susceptible to this kind of misappropriation. The vision that God gives to Ezekiel is incredibly powerful and a profound word of hope, the gravity of which should not be missed. What we need to remember about this text, like many Old Testament texts, is the all-encompassing importance of the context of Babylonian exile. So let's try to set the stage a little bit. But a little history lesson. We'll try not to get too boring, though. So a while after the Hebrew people settled in the land of Canaan, they formed the kingdom of Israel. And we call this very brief period the United Monarchy. It only lasted um, for all of three kings. So after Solomon's death, and remember Solomon was the one who built the temple, after his death, the kingdom split into two. We call this the, the divided monarchy. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So at this point in the history of God's people, uh, they basically went their separate ways. They kind of did their own thing. Didn't, they didn't exactly fight, but they didn't exactly get along either. There was always this recognition of a common heritage, but by and large, they tried to ignore each other or just at least uh, not interact with each other as much as possible. But then, not too long after that, the, the Assyrian Empire began its dramatic rise to power and conquered almost the entire Near East, including the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel's capital, Samaria, uh, was almost completely destroyed, and many of the people were exiled all throughout the empire into other lands. And, and other people from these other conquered territories were sent into Israel. I mean, they would send them all over the world, trying to, to kind of mix up people groups. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, was a bit luckier in their dealings with Assyria. But that luck didn't last too long, because not long after that, the Babylonians revolted from underneath the Assyrians, and they began to take over all of the territories that Assyria had conquered. And along the way, they uh, that included Judah. They completely annihilated Judah, again, including its capital, which at that time was Jerusalem, 
and the temple built by Solomon, the dwelling place of God. So this is very important to hear. When they destroyed the temple, they destroyed what in the Jewish mind was the place where God dwelled. So like their Israelite counterparts to the north, they were also scattered among the Babylonian Empire, sent into exile. This is a very important and formative uh, point in history when we talk about the biblical literature. These people of Judah, or Judahites as we call them, they were the last hope of God's chosen people to be able to continue on their heritage, their tradition, their culture. Because they had watched, they had seen over the past uh, 200 years or so, how the Israelites had basically disappeared from the face of the earth. They'd become so assimilated into their new cultures that they, they lost all, almost all religious and cultural identity. There, there was no Israel anymore. For all intents and purposes, there were no Israelites, only Judahites. But they were determined. These Judahites were determined to not let the fate of the Israelites become their fate as well. They were determined to maintain their identity as God's people, to not lose their particularity, not lose their uniqueness as God's people. But there was one problem, one, one other massive, monumental, perhaps even seemingly insurmountable problem. What about their God? Had God been defeated? Was God dead? Because remember, in the ancient world, when two peoples do battle against each other, the, the, the people who lose, their God is said to have lost as well. Because the battles that take place on earth are only reflections of the battles that are also taking place in the heavens. So to be conquered by Babylon is to be taunted, to say, well, sure, we beat you, but that's only because our God beat your God. Your God was powerless against ours. And not only that, that again, so Jerusalem, the temple, being the very dwelling place of God, now it's, it's, it's completely, it's gone. It, it's, it's been conquered. It's been decimated. That was where God lived. That was where God dwelt. So if that's where God was and how God was ac accessed, how, how do we, even if God is still alive in some way, how do we access God now that we have been scattered all around the world? For those of us who have been exiled to Babylon and to all the other corners of the empire, we don't have access to God anymore. God can't hear us. God can't reach us. We are alone. We are without hope. And we hear these, these, uh, these sentiments echoed in Psalm 137, which is a psalm clearly referencing the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians are taunting the people and they're saying to them, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And the psalmist asks, how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They, they had been, in the minds of the people, all was lost. Not only had they lost their homes, watched perhaps many of their family members be slaughtered, uh, lost everything, but, but now, even if God was still alive, they were in a place that was so far from home that they were literally out of God's reach, out of God's hands, completely abandoned. And into this situation, into this understanding of what was going on, comes Ezekiel and his vision. Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones 
is, is, is about far more than something as trivial as having a rough day at the office, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a lot bigger than getting a flat tire. Ezekiel's vision doesn't speak to our reductionistic Twitter theologies. It's about those times when the mere idea that even the faintest sliver of hope could possibly exist is just a cruel joke. You don't entertain those notions because hope doesn't exist in exile. It's about those places of deep and excruciating fear, of crippling doubt. Where do we go from here? What possible hope can we have? But that, that's not to say that we can't relate to that at all. While I'm fairly sure that none of us have quite been through that experience of exile, that's not to say that we haven't known pain, because we have, absolutely. We have felt intense and unspeakable loss. If you've ever seen someone battle through the impossible road to recovery from addiction, or lost someone to addiction, you know about the valley of dry bones. If you've ever sat with someone, diagnosed with a terminal illness, watched them wither away until they barely even resemble their former self, you know about the dry bones. If you've ever seen a child, like, like many in this county, who comes to school after a long weekend, races into the classroom for their free breakfast at school because that may be the only meal that she's had since she left school on Friday. You know about the dry bones. The vision that God gives to Ezekiel is a vision that speaks hope, deep and profound hope, into situations that are completely hopeless, that have no answer, that have no glimmer of hope. Situations where... We feel completely surrounded by death. And God says, in the midst of that death, in the midst of that valley, life will spring up. God says, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. The Hebrew word for breath, interestingly, also means spirit. And God promises to put God's own spirit in the people. So, so when the people say, we are cut off completely, we have no hope, God says, yes, you do. No, you're not. You're not cut off. The promise of God's Spirit is a promise that assures the people in exile that they are not out of God's reach. That even without Jerusalem, even without the temple, God is still with them. God is still present. God has not and will not abandon them. As we're approaching Holy Week in the next couple weeks, I'm struck by what must have been a flurry of confused emotions for the disciples after the events of Good Friday. They've been following this man around for three years. In him, they had found hope for a future. In him, they found life. They found something different. There was something about him. He was the long-expected Messiah who had finally come, and now he's dead. Now he's gone. And they're on the run, hiding in fear. They don't know what to do now. Where do we go from here? What, what do we do next? What possible hope can we have now? They, too, were standing in that valley, asking those questions. Can these dry bones live? 
It's in the midst of that valley, in the midst of those questions, those doubts, those fears, that the news of the empty tomb begins to break like the dawn. Suddenly, breath begins to enter them. Sinews begin to come back together. Flesh comes upon them. They begin to know again, definitively, that God has not abandoned them. That even there in that dry valley, there is hope. They begin to understand, like what Paul says, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his Spirit that dwells in you. But when we're standing in the valley, it can be difficult to remember this. Because the valley is a dark and desolate place, full of destruction. And Ezekiel's vision doesn't fix the valley, doesn't make it all so. Beautiful and hopeful, though his vision may be, the people still remain there in that dry valley. That's where they lived their lives, in exile. The question is, what, what do we do? What do we cling to while we stand in that valley? Do we cling to our pain, to our doubts, to our fears, our laments? Do we just give up and say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are completely cut off? Or do we cling to the word of God? Cling to the word of the God who promises to open up the graves of our dead hopes. The God who promises, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. The God of the empty tomb. I love Ezekiel's response when God asks him, can these dry bones live? He simply says, oh Lord God, you know. So noncommittal, right? It's, it's almost as if Ezekiel himself is afraid to truly feel hope at this moment, even when standing face to face with the glory of God. But the vision that God gives to him answers that question definitively. Yes, these dry bones can live because God is with them. They have not been abandoned. We have not been abandoned. Amen.